Well, I've oftentimes said that my taste in music is a generation older than me, right? So I, I grew up, I should, have be, I should have been listening to music from the late 70s and early 80s. The problem was disco. I didn't want to listen to that, right? So my musical taste, which I kind of blame on my older sisters, they listen to music from the late 60s and 70s, and so that's the music that I have the flavor for. And so, you know, James Taylor and Rolling Stones and Who and um, Eagles, especially Jackson Brown, one of my favorites, those, that's the music that I listen to. Now, in a high school, I discovered Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel resonated with me. First of all, I've, I felt like Simon was really so articulate and so nuanced in his language. I, wish, I always wished that I was as articulate as he. And I was a tenor in those days and I just always wanted to be able to sing like Gar Garfunkel, right? Um, he just could put a harmony to anything. It was just gorgeously lyric. By the time I started listening to them, they had broken up. Now their music is angry, but it's not rebellious. And I was a really angry kid and I tried being rebellious and that didn't get me very far. So, um, but they were angry and searching. And they were like searching on this journey, trying to find themselves and find their place in the world. And that was really how I felt. And so I love their music, it meant so much to me. But again, when I started listening to them, they were already broken up, and I just, that made me so sad. I was like, for the sake of all of us young people who need you, can you just get along, right? Put aside the petty differences and just get along. And these guys had a lot of petty differences. They started singing together when they were 11 years old. So they had a long history in New York City as two New York City kids. But alas and alack, they couldn't. But then, my senior year in high school, they came together, these two New Yorkers, and did a concert in Central Park. How many of you remember the concert in Central Park? More than last time. Where, did I, this is America, right? You. Anyway, they did the concert in Central Park. Half a million people showed up to listen to Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park, New York. It was an amazing event. They recorded it and put out this album that I listened to until, I, until it wore out that live versions of studio songs that were actually better than the versions of songs that were studio. I just loved that album. Well, come to find out, after selling a gazillion of those albums, there was money to be made. So they decided to get back together. <laughs> In 1982, they went on a world tour and then they came into the United States in 1983 to do a, um, a series of concerts in the United States. Um, I was living in Central Ohio at the time and the night before they had their first concert on their American leg of their tour, they were on David Letterman. And Art Garfunkel had a weird sense of humor and he said on national TV, and Simon scolded him on national TV, yeah, we're starting our, we're starting our, our, our tour with a practice session in Akron. Now, Akron is a relatively low self-esteem city, at least it was in those days, and, um, and so they were gonna start there. At the Rubber Bowl is the name of the stadium that used to exist, right? That's where tires were made, so the stadium was called the Rubber Bowl. Well, I was too poor to go to live music when I was a kid, but I, got, I scraped up the money to go to that. 
and I got to see Simon and Garfunkel on July 17, 1983 at the Rubber Bowl in Akron, Ohio, their opening night of their, the, the American leg of their tour. And they toured for a while and couldn't stand each other, and when the tour ended, they broke up again. And the list of all of their griefs and grievances and, uh, against each other is long. And I was just always so sad that they couldn't keep it together. It was at that point where I realized and learned for the first time and nuanced for the t- first time the difference between peace and harmony. You can have harmony. They sing great harmonies. You can have harmony. You can be successful. You can do great things but not really like each other, right? You can have a synergistic energy that will create harmony and create greatness and never have peace, And I had not considered that, but Simon and Garfunkel kind of taught me that at an early age. And this is what we hear in the scripture lesson today. I want to encourage you, because we're going to be looking at more of it than um, we had read. I want to encourage you to open the Pew Bible or take out your device and go to Mark 9. In the Pew Bible, it's on 922. But this section of Mark's gospel is really helpful to us. Again, 9.22 in your pew Bible, Mark 9, if you're at home and you have your Bible, Mark 9. We're going to start actually at the 30th verse, which is earlier than what we heard read. Now, with that said, I want to begin with a disclaimer. We are uplifting in this series over and over and over again the sense of peace and that God wills for us peace. God wants peace for us in so many different ways. Today, we're again, we're this interpersonal, we want peace with our, um, the people that we care about. But I'm also telling you that that might not be possible. Peace is what God wills for us and God wants for us, but we don't always get what God wills for us and God want, what God wants for us. Especially, I mean, in the same way we can't conjure up peace within ourselves, we can't make that happen, it's a gift from God, we can't make peace happen interpersonally. And the reason for that is no matter how hard we commit to it, you have to have another willing person. And if the other person isn't willing to know peace and the other person isn't trying to be in peace with you, there's nothing you can really do about that. And even within ourselves, we might be broken, our cut might be so deep, our scar so sensitive that we can never get ourselves to a place where we can will ourselves to be in peace with another. Sometimes it's just broken. In the context of that, I'll tell you, God does will for us peace, but we can't always achieve it. The other thing, before we dig into Mark's gospel, is Mark's gospel is really interesting because in the narrative of Mark's gospel, Jesus is human, very human, and that no one can figure out that he's divine. No one can really figure out that he's the Messiah. It's only spoken four times in that gospel, and it's pretty much forgotten as soon as it's said. And so that's a hard thing. It's the opposite of John's gospel, where everybody knows that he's the Messiah and divine. So it just gives us two different perspectives of who Jesus is. And so in this context, we can't figure out, they can't figure out who he is. And so um, that feeds into this narrative. So let's take a look. Um, In Mark 9, starting with verse 30, it says, they went from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is gonna be betrayed into human hands. They will kill him three days after being killed. He will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. So again, you see this messianic secret here in Mark's gospel. 
So he's just told them that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who's gonna die and rise. What's their response? Abject pettiness. <laughs> they're, they're, they start arguing among themselves as who's the greatness. When you read 33 to 37, you need to read it with the lens of, my dad's better than your dad. That's the level of maturity that you should hear in this text, because that's what's being said. Well, Jesus confronts them. We don't know if this is a sign that he's the Messiah because he doesn't really, we don't know if he overheard them, but he basically says, yeah, when you're arguing back there, what are we arguing about? They may not have even heard, he may not have even heard them. But what are you arguing about? Well, uh, hmm, he corrects them. And he corrects them multiple times in multiple ways. So the corrections are, first and foremost, um, if you want to be great, you have to serve. The metric of greatness is not accomplishment. The metric of greatness is serving. You have to serve. That's what will make you great. Then he brings a child in the midst and says you have to welcome one of these. You have to be as one of these. You have to make yourself as low as one of these. The folks that he was talking to would never have understood that. Because unlike us, where we center our world around our children and they are precious to us, children were kind of material possessions to them. They had a bunch of them so that they could have workers. Children were, had no rights. They had no status. And so when he's using a child as an example and saying you have to be like one of them, He's basically saying you have to lower yourself to that status in order to be great. He then goes on to heal, which we had skipped, to heal someone who had a, a bad spirit in them. Um, their body was being ravaged. He could tell who they really were, and he removed that from them. It's starting with this whole kind of difference between spirit and body kind of nuance. Again, something that the people he was talking to would never have understood. And then he goes on to talk more about that. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. This would be radical teaching, it's, it is, uh, but it would be radical, even more radical teaching to the people that he was talking to. Why? Because they didn't see the body and the soul as being any different. Like, if you had a spiritual problem, it manifested itself in your body, whether it was halitosis or hair loss. They said that that was caused because your spirit wasn't right. And so the notion of maiming your body would be a notion of somehow you're acknowledging the spirit's badness within you, and he's saying it the exact opposite way. It'd be better for you to cut off your hand or your foot and be right with God, and to be maimed in this life but right in the next. That's what he's saying. It would be better for you to be blind of all things, but be right with God than to be whole in this world and be bad with God. This is the primary relationship. And he ends by teaching that. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, what he's saying, 
honestly is, you are spiritual people, you are people of faith, and much like salt, the only way that you define salt is by its saltiness. The only way that we are to be defined is by our spiritualness, is by our faith, and when we lose that, we're nothing. But when we have that, especially peace with God, then we are who we are, we are who we were meant to be. Well, I'll leave you with a story of uh, two young men who started off as college freshman roommates at Columbia University in New York City. One guy was named Sandy, the other guy was named Art. They got to become really good friends really quickly. Being at Columbia, they were both smart as a whip and um, they really had a great bond right away. So, um, they're at Columbia University. Not long after they started there, Sandy started experiencing eye problems. He started struggling with his sight. He was misdiagnosed a bunch of times, and then ultimately, by the time they diagnosed him, um, and again, this was in the late 50s, he had glaucoma that was going to make him completely blind. He would lose his eyesight. And of course, that was a struggle when you're a freshman in college. He went home from New York City back to his parents' home in Buffalo, New York. He went into their basement. He could do nothing other than to reflect and think about what a burden he would be on his parents for the rest of their lives. He struggled, he floundered, he sank into a deep depression. He refused to have any conversation with anyone other than his parents. He shut the doors on the world until his roommate and friend Art showed up Uninvited and unannounced, Art showed up and convinced him, Sandy, you have to go back to Columbia and I will help you. And he said, I will, I'll, I'll be your eyes at Columbia. So Art convinced Sandy to do it. The next semester they started again. Art rearranged his whole life around Sandy's. He took him to class. He did everything with him. Matter of fact, Art had a twisted sense of humor, so he started calling himself darkness. Just as an ironic twist, he would say, you know, darkness is here to take you to class, and darkness is gonna read you this book, and darkness is gonna take us to supper, and darkness this and darkness that. And that's how he referred to himself. Well, they did well. They had one rough patch, though. You see, art, and Sandy were going somewhere and they were in Grand Central Station in New York City and all of a sudden Art said, hey, I gotta be somewhere, I need to go, I'm sure you'll figure it out, see ya, and he left. Sandy felt terribly abandoned, ditched. In Grand Central Station in New York, he's completely blind and completely dependent. So after several harrowing hours in which Sandy struggled, floundered, every step of the way cursing Art's name, gashed his shin, um, finally got on the right train and finally got off at 116th Street, the, the stop that he was supposed to get off on. After he got off the train and he was able to make his way to the steps, he was going up the steps, a man bumps into him and the guy apologizes to him and says, oh, excuse me. Sandy recognizes the voice, it was Art. And although Art had not been next to him any longer, he never abandoned him. He stayed a bit away, just making sure that 
Sandy got where he was supposed to do, but also making sure that Sandy figured out how to do it himself. Sandy is currently 82 years old, and he still refers to that experience as the most defining experience of his life. It was that day that he went from being a dependent person to an independent person. Well, Sandy, with Art's help, went on to graduate. As a matter of fact, he graduated top of his class, Phi Beta Kappa, Columbia University in New York. He, um, Art, got an art history degree. Um, Sandy went on to get into Harvard, got both of his master's and his PhD from Harvard. He was recognized by the Johnson administration, and he was invited to be one of 17 young people to intern in the White House. While there, he met David Rockefeller of the oil magnate Rockefeller family, and he pitched a business idea to David Rockefeller, and David Rockefeller said, great idea, and he actually put up the funds for it. Electronic data processing has made Sanford, Sandy Greenberg, millions of dollars. His net worth today, I looked it up, is about $60 million. But he would be worth, New Yorkers say, at least twice that. But because of his great philanthropy, he has given away about half of what he has made. Art did fine. Art um, actually sang a little bit, and he wound up um, having a little bit of success, and then not. He went to graduate school, got his master's degree. He actually went on to teach school. Um, and he and Sandy were friends. But all of a sudden, there was a, a chance for potential success singing. And so while Sandy was actually still in Harvard, Art was talking about how, yeah, if we could just get the money for a recording, we could maybe record the song and it would be okay. And Sandy said, here you go. And he gave him now in 1964, which was a lot of money, $400. And so Art, with his friend, went into uh, the recording studio and recorded a song. And the rest, they would say, is history. You see, Art is Art Garfunkel. And the song that they recorded on that day with that $400 was The Sounds of Silence, which starts... Hello, darkness, my old friend. Sandy and Art have been friends their entire lives going forward. And they remain incredibly close, even to today. The lesson that we learn is the lesson that we hear in Scripture today. Those who will be great must serve. To serve like Art served Sandy and ultimately like Sandy served Art. <laughs> and that for Art, all the harmony in the world pales by comparison to having peace. The peace he has with Sandy. So my friends, those of you who want to be great, I dare say it, serve and serve well. And through your serving, may you also find peace with your neighbor. Amen.